The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming health tech. From AI to robotics and beyond, we're reinventing what's possible, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. Hi, a quick announcement before we get started. If you'll be in New York City next week, join me and your fellow Next Big Idea fans for a live event. We'll be talking about AI, augmented reality, and consciousness with big thinkers, including philosopher David Chalmers and science writer Stephen Johnson. It's going to be Wednesday, June 28th, starting at 6 p.m. in the Meatpacking District with a VIP dinner afterwards for those who'd like to join. You can get more information and buy tickets at betaworks.com events. Now, on with the show. LinkedIn presents... We wake up in the morning thinking that we have all this agency, that we decide what we're going to wear, what we're going to eat, where we're going to go, what we're going to do, where there's these external forces that are pushed upon us that are influencing us, that are swaying us, that are demanding that we do a certain thing or behave a certain way based on how we self-identify until we decide to shift our identity. Happy Monday, everyone. It's a fresh new week, and there's no time like now to start getting smarter and we're here to help. This week, I'm speaking with Marcus Collins, who wrote a new book called For the Culture, The Power Behind What We Buy, What We Do, and Who We Wanna Be. Now, Marcus comes out of the world of marketing, but if you're picturing some stodgy Madison Avenue ad guy, you might wanna reset. Marcus handled digital strategy for Beyonce. He helped make the Brooklyn Nets a thing when they moved over from New Jersey. He's put in time at Apple and at the edgy ad company Translation and became head of strategy at the influential ad firm Wyden & Kennedy, famous for their Nike campaigns. Along the way, he kept one foot in academia, earning his MBA and PhD in marketing, and he now teaches at the University of Michigan. What Marcus is interested in is not so much the spreadsheets and pie charts of corporate growth, but from a very high level, how do certain ideas, certain behaviors, certain memes catch on? How do we decide what things mean? And key to understanding that, he says, is understanding culture. There's no force more influential to human behavior than culture. You hear that and probably think, yeah, sure, that makes sense. But if you ask five people to define culture, you'll probably get 15 different answers. And that's a problem. Without a concrete definition to describe culture, we limit our ability to operationalize its sway in our work and our day-to-day lives. The term culture finds a home in a broad array of literature, but tends to find itself in this idea of a system, a system of beliefs, symbols, and values from which a group of people and their corresponding roles and norms are established and governed. Through this lens, culture consists of four distinct yet interrelated elements that describe its characteristics, beliefs, artifacts, behaviors, and language. The alchemy of these four characteristics is said to represent one's culture. We see it demonstrated in our ethnicities, our nationalities, religions, and passion points whereby we invest ourselves. For instance, if you subscribe to sneaker culture, then there are beliefs, artifacts, behaviors, and language that are expected of you to be counted among the community of sneakerheads. Whether you're into skating, gaming, collecting comics, or performing cosplay, each of these collectives have cultural characteristics that are normalized within the community and expected of those who self-identify as such. Therefore, those who see themselves as a member of the community subsequently adhere to these norms to promote social solidarity among the community and remain in lockstep with their members. Naturally, this informs how they consume. 
or what they consume. One might even argue that consumption, by its very nature, is a cultural act. What we buy, what we wear, what we drive, how we style our hair, where we go to school, who we marry, if we marry, where we vacation, even where, how we bury the dead. All these things are byproducts of our cultural subscription, the system of beliefs, artifacts, behaviors, and language that demarcate who we are and the expectations of people like us. And we abide by these expected conventions to stay in lockstep with our people. We buy the way our people buy. We vote the way our people vote. And we watch where our people watch. Because culture moves forward on the basis of one simple question. Do people like me do something like this? If the answer is yes, we do it. The answer is no, we don't. Therefore, if you have a vested interest in getting people to take action, then culture is your biggest cheat code. Marcus Collins, welcome to the Next Big Idea Daily. Thank you so much for having me. I'm stoked to be here. So you have this academic grounding and you have this uh, profession in in marketing at a pretty high level. But who is is the book targeted towards professional marketers? Is it for a general audience? Who are you trying to talk to? I'd say the book is trying to speak to or anyone with a vested interest in getting people to move. Because I would argue that marketing is the act of going to market in an effort to get people to adopt behavior, right? To get people to to vote to download, to watch, to subscribe, to buy, uh, uh, to talk about something. Like everything we do as marketers are to get people to adopt behavior. And just because you have marketer in your title or not, doesn't mean that you're not trying to get people to move. In many mm -hmm. ways, we're all trying to, to some degree or another, whether we're trying to sell a new product, we're trying to sell in an idea at our company, whether we're trying to get people to adopt a policy within our organization, mm -hmm. or in my case, trying to get my daughter to eat peas. Yeah. <laughs> and, I was going to say, parenting involves a lot of marketing, doesn't it? <laughs> That's right. I mean, everything we do uh, is trying to get people to adopt behavior. Uh, let's get into your first big idea, which is, and it's in the title of your book, which I think maybe is also a Jay-Z quote, for the culture and culture. Now, you, you use this word throughout the book and it's sort of, sort of the lens through which you're approaching this topic. I mean, maybe we should just quickly summarize what you mean by culture. What, how, how do you define that? complicated sure. word. And that's our problem, right? Because if we can't define a thing concretely, how do we ever operationalize it? How do we ever leverage it or harness its power? And for people with a vested interest in getting people to move, culture is unbelievably powerful because there is no external force more influential in human behavior than culture. Mm -hmm. So what is this thing? What is this force that is on us that gets us to adopt behavior the way it does? Well, I look at culture through a Durkheimian lens. Emil Durkheim, one of the founding fathers of sociology, talks about culture as the system of conventions and expectations that demarcate who we are and what people like us do, right? It's a system that becomes the meaning-making uh, uh, frames by which we translate the world. There, It's anchored in our identity, who we are, how we self-identify, that is, right? who I am. And because of who I am, I hold a set of beliefs and ideologies. Beliefs, these are the truths that I hold about the world. The ideologies are the stories I tell myself about the world because of those truths. And my identity is the character that I play in, hmm. in those stories. And because of how I see the world, I therefore behave in the world accordingly. I show up in the world accordingly. I wear certain garbs that are meaningful for people like me. Mm -hmm. I behave relative to the norms, expectations, the, the ceremonies, the rituals, the unwritten mm -hmm. rules of people like me. Mm -hmm. And by that nature or by that fact, I would then argue, and I do argue, that consumption 
is at its core a cultural act. We consume as a way to make our culture material and signal who we are to the world so that we might be able to stay in good standing citizenship with our people. Yeah, you say we use it to signal, but it occurs to me it's only half conscious. I mean, you know, culture is sort of the sea we swim in. So to some extent, I might be able to self-identify, you know, what culture I'm part of and I want to signal to my, to other members of culture. But there might be things that I'm not even, I can't articulate that, you know, why I dress this way or why I like that music. It's not like we're kind of something we're in total in control of. I mean, that's what makes it so unbelievably powerful because it has influence on us without even knowing it has influence on us. Mm. We wake up in the morning thinking that we have all this agency that we decide what we're going to wear, what we're going to eat, where we're going to go, what we're going to do, where there's these external forces that are pushed upon us that are influences, that are swaying us, that are demanding that we do a certain thing or behave a certain way based on how we self-identify until we decide to shift our identity. Before we move on, I guess I just wanted to see if you could give me one example of how this kind of cultural thinking can be useful for marketers and advertisers. Like what's the difference between kind of more conventional way of marketing and one that really identifies culture as, as the important element? The conventional approaches to marketing is that we typically focus on value propositions uh, and positioning statements, right? Like, you know, most marketing students learned STP, segmentation, targeting, and positioning. Segmentation is how we take a heterogeneous market and put them in homogeneous-like clusters. Okay. Targeting is when we decide which of those clusters we're going to go after. And positioning is the cognitive real estate that we're going to own in their minds relative to the product in relationship to competitors, right? My razor sharper, my battery lasts longer, my car goes faster, my shampoo will give you body. I don't even know what that means, but whatever. <laughs> um, that's the way we typically go about it. And, and that's well and fine if your goal is to develop transactional-based relationships with people, mm-hmm. right? That is, oh, someone says, you know what? I need a sharper razor. You have eight blades. I'm going to buy yours. Great. Mm-hmm. But the minute someone has nine blades, you're toast, mm-hmm. right? So it's costing an arms race when it comes to, to features and benefits. Uh, but what we know about people is that people don't consume primarily because of functionality because mm-hmm. of value propositions, mm-hmm. right? They consume as an act of who they are. They are driven by psychological and sociological impulses. So mm-hmm. what then governs these sociological and psychological impulses? Culture, mm-hmm. identity. So instead of focusing on the value propositions of the product, at least in the upfront, instead, I would argue and the literature would argue that we should start with who these people are and how they see the world. Mm-hmm. And then based on how they see the world, we then introduce the product. Or as C.C. Chapman puts it, uh, you start with the soul and end with the cell. Mm. You start with the evocative, the, the, the ideology, the belief, how people see the world, because that activates a part of the brain that's actually associated with behavior, the limbic system. And then you provide the value propositions that help justify or rationalize what would normally be just an emotional decision. I love how early in the book you talk about the famous Budweiser What's Up commercial. Yo, you pick up the phone. Hello? What's up? What's up? (laughs) And that, to me, that really nailed your thesis in a way because I immediately knew what you were talking about. You know, that ad 
for those who remember it, was really kind of out of left field. It didn't say anything about the taste of Budweiser, the calories, the cost. Didn't say much of anything, really. It just showed a group of friends hanging out, using their little funny catchphrase with each other. And it worked. It, it, I'm sure it revitalized Budweiser's image. It made it suddenly accessible to a maybe younger, hipper, more urban market. And it was amazing. You know, it just kind of like, it just sort of signaled friendship and connection and community and culture, I suppose, with, you know, the most minimalist concept you can imagine. <laughs> I mean, the way you said it was perfect. It signaled. And what is signaling? Signaling is a way by which we implicitly communicate meaning. So when brands signal in a way that people go, oh, I get that. You're mm -hmm. talking to me. Mm -hmm. The brand now becomes a way by which, or in the, the brand communication, becomes a way by which I communicate my identity. Not because of what it is, but because of who I am. That's it for today, everyone. If you're in the business of convincing others to do things, and we're all in that business sometimes, I hope you'll come back tomorrow when Marcus will talk to us about how what we used to call companies transform themselves into brands and how some of these brands have become cult-like objects of devotion. You Apple fanboys and girls out there will want to listen to this one. I'm Michael Kavnat. See you tomorrow. <laughs>